I'm fascinated by what allows some people to ascend the corporate ladder whilst leaving others in their wake. When you listen to my interview with Will Irving, you will start to have a much clearer picture of leadership traits and qualities. Will is one of the most experienced telecommunication executives in Australia. He worked on the privatisation of Telstra and has been part of its biggest ever transformation. And he's done this under four CEOs who have each had their own style and swagger. His roles are high profile, high pressure and high stakes. But what you'll find about Will Irving is a very calm and considered leader who puts people first and gives unselfishly to those around him so that they can look good and the company he works for can continue to flourish and thrive. Perhaps that is it. What makes a good leader is someone willing to give rather than take. And this holds true for my discussion with Will as he gives me and disciplined listeners his honest assessment of himself and his career to date. Enjoy. Will Irving, incoming Chief Strategy and Transformation Officer at NBN Co. Welcome to Discipline. Hi, Tony. Now, you've had an incredible work history, and we'll get into that shortly, um, but it's often the case with Discipline to start at the beginning. When you, when you were a young boy, what did you want to be when you grew up? I think it's a good question. Initially, I thought sort of something in science or computing. And the reason was I had an uncle who was an aeronautical engineer, and he bought an Apple II, not a IIe or a two, an Just Apple II computer yep. in the US in 1978, more than the cost of a car at that point. And he brought it out to Australia. We still had a power board that had the US plug in it, to give you an idea. I was going to ask, could it convert? Uh, in any event, I got taught how to do a bit of basic programming as yep. a sort of late primary school student in an era when most kids didn't know what a computer was. Yep. And then you know, the Commodore came out a couple of years later and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I thought that was really interesting and I'd always liked science and I suppose when I was five or six I wanted to be an astronaut like most other kids in the mid-70s at, at that stage. So yeah, if you'd asked me in 1979 what do I want to do in grade five, it was sort of science or computing. Yep, so you're obviously uh, studious and since that point you've also gone on to work in big teams, manage big teams, manage uh, high-performing teams with a lot of people in it. Um, were you a natural leader as a child? Um, I tended to, I, I'm the eldest of three boys, so I probably learnt to be the bossy one. And if you ask my younger brothers, they'd probably say there were You're times bossy, when I was a slightly, slightly bossy, you know, the classic eldest child, very responsible, always needed to keep an eye out for uh, younger brothers and as a result tended to naturally, well, you know, when you're taller, you can see further, you tend to do these things. Um, and then at school, I had a couple of formative experiences. One, um, the school I was at had a cadet program. And in year nine, you were just a, all the um, kids had to do uh, a service and you either did scouts or cadets, and then you could choose to stay in. And I went through what were sort of promotion courses through year 10, 11, and 12. They were initially taught you how to teach because as a corporal, you had to teach your sort of the next year nine yep. when you were in year 10 how to do, okay. you know, go camping up at Pakapunyal or whatever, yep. whatever it was. As time went on, you learned more and more how did you motivate a group of largely conscripts because the ones that didn't get into scouts ended up in cadets. Um, and actually learned a lot about leading people. And I had sort of 30 people as a, a sergeant and then as a, what was called a cadet under officer. Um, so that was really my first introduction to, to leading peers rather than being in a situation where right, you're captain of a sporting team and you've got that kind of thing to do. Um, and I just enjoyed it. Yep. And I like talking. So you put those two things <laughs> together and what do you do? Um, so 
at high school then, I mean, as a student, what kind of student were you? Were you uh, focused on your studies? Were you uh, into the sport or into the, the cadets? What, what, what really grabbed your attention? Yeah, I was reasonably focused on um, study. Uh, yeah, so I, I knew that I, having sort of gone on from the sort of the science computing thing, had decided um, business interested me so I could yep. see it was a way to get things done. Uh, I had my mother had been a scientist. She'd done a science degree, and then she was a biochemist uh, working at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. And my father was a partner at one of the big law firms. Okay. So I kind of had science on one side and sort of humanities and law on the other. Um, knew that I didn't want to be tied to six-minute timesheets because I watched the you know, impact of those as my, on the way that my father worked. Um, and, but equally, I could see that if you wanted to. And I was doing, started doing debating while I was at school. Yep. And then uh, I, in fact, went and did a commerce degree first, thinking I don't really want to go into the law, but, you know, in business, this is the late 80s. So the height of John Elliott and all the sort of entrepreneurial, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, kind of rise. In fact, my first holiday, holiday job at the end of first year uni was in a stockbroker's in 1987, just after the stock market yeah, okay. So that was what I did. And in fact, my initial plan was to go into a McKinsey or a Bain or something like yes. that. 1989 in Victoria was my third year. The economy was tanking. This is the recession we had to have. This is right. The state bank goes broke. It's yep. bought out by the Commonwealth in a, what would now be called a bailout. And the recruiting, that is the management consultant firm simply stopped hiring. Yeah. And I was either then going to do an honours year in accounting yes. um, or go and do law. Yep. And I had friends in debating saying, I'll oh, come and do law. Recession will be over. You'll enjoy it. Yeah. And I did. I had to sit an exam to go and, because um, by that stage I was over. a mature age student, I'm coming to the end of my commerce degree, got into law at Melbourne and then um, started a law degree. And for me, it was the best thing that ever happened. Yep. From the perspective of growing From, up or being yeah, older? One, maturing. Secondly, yeah. um, I got to travel a fair bit. Uh, I was debating for the university and I had a few trips to Europe and one to Malaysia, um, funded by the university, um, to go to things like the World Championships. Uh, and I met my wife, who was uh, became a debater in her final year at university. We've still been set up 25th wedding anniversary. Congratulations! So it was, yeah, it's been. Oh, a, it was a good, good yeah, thing to do. It was a really good yeah, thing yeah, to do. Yeah. And I, yeah, I just matured. And of course, the recession came to an end. And uh, at the end of sort of, um, well, in fact, Telstra, uh, Telstra, uh, Melbourne University hosted the World Debating Championship at the end of 1993, and I chaired the organising committee. So that was a really back to the leadership question. At uni, I'd gone on a couple of committees for different things, uh, but debating had been the one that I probably ended up gravitating yep. to. So organising a world championship, we had um, 20 different countries, 500 students from around the world. It must have been amazing. Um, you know, I was negotiating a broadcast deal. We tried to get Channel 7, and they said to us, well, if you can guarantee an Australian team in the final, uh, then we'll, we'll take you. And it's actually the world championships are a British format with four teams. There's two teams on each side, two, so eight people. Teams of two. Um, and I said, sorry, we can't read the draw to guarantee an Australian team, although Australians disproportionately win at Worlds. Um, in the end, we got SBS, but we held it up in the um, upper house in the Victorian Parliament. Uh, you know, we had to deal with Qantas for bringing people out here. Did the Australians get into the finals? Uh, in the end, no. Right, okay. Um, so it was, you know, we had a New Zealand team, I think, in the final, but um, no Australian team. So... Yeah, but I was never going to read the draw to do that as much as we really would have loved to have Channel 7. And when I got to meet people in that era, it was Ivan Deverson who was um, head at Channel 7 and got to meet him. So great experience. As Amazing a experience. Yeah. And then, I mean, you've then transitioned into 
one of the biggest law firms in Mallison, Stephen Jarks, as it was at the time, as an article clerk. Um, did any of that uh, exposure on the debating team help getting that position, do you think? Yeah, yeah. it did. In fact, um, I walked into the articles interview and a brilliant lady, Galana Atlas, had been the liaison point, used to go staff partner into the um, debating society. So I knew Alana, and she's one of the three people they're interviewing. Yeah. So I was probably a lot more relaxed than the average petrified law student sort of walking in, really hoping to, to you know, get to a place. And you've already sense. raised your profile. People know who you are. Yeah. 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 So uh, it doesn't have to be debating. I was. It was just the, the people that I gravitated to. But I think sport, community service, yeah. and probably in this era there, there's a lot more now community service work that students do. It didn't really exist in quite the same way in the sort of 80s and early 90s. And obviously... You've got a competitive spirit being in the debating team. So, were you competitive as a student, or were you competitive wanting to get into the law firm and then become a, a great lawyer straight away? Yeah, I, yes, competitive in the sense that I always wanted to do well. And in fact, my father, at some point, probably when I was about twelve or thirteen, he made a comment that, um, and it's a quote of um, I'm not sure if they're American or French, some philosopher, but anyway, um, that not failure but low aim is crime. In other words, it's okay to fail, yeah. but if you kind of shoot below where you think you could go, yeah. then you're kind of, you're not live fulfilling your own potential and, in fact, that has an impact on everyone else. If everyone goes around always sort of taking the easy option, yeah. uh, society doesn't end up with all the potential fulfilled. Yeah. Um, and I suppose I'd found that as, thing, as time had gone on, yes, I, you know, I wasn't, you know, I got a, a third-class honours degree, not a first-class honours degree. I wasn't smart enough. Uh, and or prepared to work quite that hard, um, one or other or both, but I wanted to do well enough. Yeah. Uh, and so I was very keen to get into a place where I thought I was going to get interesting work, and that was really the you know, the spur for Malison's. Uh, and luckily, you know, I, I had done enough that they thought I was worth hiring. Which yeah, was I mean, the, the competitive to get into those big yeah. firms, I've, I've been through it myself, I know what it's like. Um, and then a bit like myself, after a few years decided to go in-house, decided with a long-term view that partnership wasn't going to be for you? I think back to the comments about my dad and six-minute units. Yep. I'd known that from the day I went into Mallison's. Um, I really wasn't planning on becoming a partner. It was, well, at least that wasn't the plan. If it had happened and that's what I'd chosen to do because I'd changed my mind about it, great. But I was really interested in learning what are its clients doing where can I add most value? I still have the commerce degree first. Yep. Um, and so that was sort of still in the back of my head. As it happened, quite by chance, I started doing work for Telstra in my very first few weeks there. Yes. Someone was away and I went wandering looking for work, opened the door of um, someone who was working on some Telstra work and there it, is. You know, there it was. Yeah. And you know, a series of things happened. Uh, and then I became very heavily involved in their work as sort of first and second year. And then the partner I was working for, or one of the partners I was working for, a guy called Bruce Ackhurst, in late 1996 left Malison's, having been head of the Melbourne office, to become general counsel at Telstra. Yes, yep. And not that many months later, uh, he asked me to go across and set up a legal team in what was a new group called Wholesale. The duopoly with Optus now, was is, coming to an end. And, is yeah. this around the time of privatisation? This is just pre-T1, that's right. Yep. A few months ahead of the first third of Telstra being privatised. Yep. Um, so, in fact, I joined Telstra about three months before uh, got privatised. So there would have been huge amounts of change going on in this corporate environment. Yeah. 
So real baptism of fire, I assume? It, look, it was on a whole bunch of measures. You'd had a monopoly up until 1991. Now, Telstra didn't even, well, Telecom Telstra didn't even pay income tax until the early 90s to give you an idea how sort of government department it was. <laughs> and when I first joined the what is now called the employee number at Telstra, it's an eight-digit number, was at that point called the AGS. It was your Australian Government Service yeah. number. Okay, so it really um, was. It mo- really was still, yeah. And then along came T1, a third of the company was privatised. Two years later, the next 16%, so I was almost sort of 49% privatised. And then 2006, in fact, I led a lot of the legal work on T3 as general counsel at that point, the final 51% got sold. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it was going through the government to um, sort of private ownership transition. It was going through a monopoly There'd been a duopoly on the fixed side with Optus from 91 to 97. And in fact, the day I arrived was the day the duopoly ended. Uh, and then it was open competition. Open slather. So anybody yeah. was then allowed to build networks. It wasn't just, you know, Telstra and Optus who could build networks from and that point very on. Very quick on the heels of that was probably Orange came in. So you had so you had a bunch of things happening. You had on the fixed side a whole bunch of um, players. So APT, what is now TPG, what is now Vocus, um, to pick a couple of names. Vodafone had started its mobile build in about 92, 93, so it had been a triopoly in mobile but a duopoly in fixed. Uh, and then, yeah, Hutch, which is Orange, arrived in two, about 2000, 2001. It wasn't long after. And then uh, the likes of OneTel and all these other stuff. And then we had, <laughs> I had, had the joys of, of OneTel, and I was in wholesale, which was selling to OneTel. And, uh, I mean, at the time, the rates were, were public. OneTel was buying... Um, calls from Telstra at seven and a half cents of fixed line call in the days when fixed line calls really still mattered. Retail price was 25 cents, you'll recall. OneTel was selling them for 15 cents. Uh, and I had a friend at one point say, gee, you know, OneTel's great. I said, yeah, enjoy it while it lasts because a model where you buy something for more than you sell it for doesn't last forever. And yeah. .com crash happened and the rest OneTel is history. Is no longer. That's right. Um, so you've come across in, in an eight-year period, you've ascended very rapidly to a group general counsel. Now, we're talking about government monopoly, very competitive company, people who had been around in these halls many years as you you know before you turned up um, with A-type legal personalities. Uh, you were sent to this lofty role. How, how do you do this in, in this environment? Look, I took a view. I came in and I had one lawyer working for me and I was there to set up this wholesale legal team. Wholesale had been part of a bigger corporate group prior to that point. And I said, I'm just going to do the best job I can. I was still, you know, uh, under 30 at that point. Um, and I figured, well, I knew I could work hard and I knew I probably had enough intellect to sort of figure out what I didn't know and go find somebody who could help me. Yeah. So I had a very, you know, a good sort of, and quite a broad team of people at a couple of law firms who were there to help. Um, I had in Bruce Acker someone who was willing to give me a go. He would sort of keep throwing me the task. He wasn't, I don't know, I've never quite asked him this, but I sometimes wondered, you're not sure whether I can do this anymore or that I'm not sure whether I can do this, but you're giving it to me because you want me to have a go. So I'll back to that comment of my dad's, I'll have the best go I can. And if the go's good enough, great, you'll give me the next thing. And if it's not good enough, we'll both do a stock take and, and learn. But I'd always had a view, I was at Telstra for the next 18 months. Yes. Because I had line of sight to, okay, this project needs to happen. And by the way, I started with a domestic wholesale business. Six months later, Bruce gave me the international wholesale business. Yep. Then the rest of international, which had operations in the UK and, and the US and so on. And I was doing a fair bit of travel at that point. Uh, and then all of the infrastructure business inside um, Australia got sort of merged into this 
mega group that was getting effectively ready potentially to split the company um, in the early 2000s. And then in 2001, Bruce made me his deputy. And so initially, uh, he, as general counsel, had sort of the senior lawyers reporting to him. But then he started taking on commercial responsibilities. So yes, yeah. wholesale, big pond, yep. the directory's business census, yellow pages. Um, and so by August of 2002, he put all the lawyers underneath me. So I'd gone from being deputy and but sort of peer to deputy with all of the former peers working for me. And in some ways, that was one of the most difficult Yeah, I was going to ask. I mean, that's that's got to be very because tough. Because I was younger than most of them, yep. uh, almost all of them. Um, uh, but equally, you know, they didn't. They still had Bruce there, so they kind of felt all right. There was uh, enough continuity, and I think that, to be candid, that sort of commerce background, the understanding of the business, which meant I was probably putting myself in the heads of the uh, commercial, you know, clients, customers. I wish lawyers would call their customers customers. By the way, um, I think it would change a lot of the way people perceive them. But anyway. I was able to put myself in the customers' heads, perhaps a bit more than some of my peers. Yeah. And in an in-house corporate environment, in a technology that's company, essential. that's moving quickly. Yeah. With all of the change that was happening, that probably I could see not just what people were doing, but I probably had a better sense of why. Yeah. Uh, and that, to quote an old Wayne uh, Canadian ice hockey player's sort of quote, you know, his key skill was to skate to where, where the puck was going. going to be. Yeah. And to the extent you can do that in any walk of life, doesn't matter what it is, it just makes it a whole lot easier. Yeah. And I probably, without really understanding it at the time, I was probably doing that a bit better than some of the others. And I think <clears throat> I learned that as well at British Telecom. One of the things um, I was always told is it's great to be a good black letter lawyer, but really you're not you're not there for the business to be that. You're there to help the business get to where it wants to go and making sure it's protected. Um, so find a way. Don't stand in the way. Yes, but equally, there are. So you're absolutely right. Find a legal way to do it. Great. Explain the consequences again. Of there are some things which are legally just simply, you know, not permitted. Full stop. No discussion. There are other things where, well, you can choose to take that risk if you wanted. This is the consequence. And I don't mean you're deliberately breaking the law. But for example, in some of the advertising stuff, um, you make a claim that's puffery one minute. Um, you know, there's a 43 lemons in a box of fab. Well, no, there really isn't, but no one really expects it to be true. Well, that's legally okay. You know, then there are things where, well, actually the product, you know, doesn't, doesn't do. And there are times when people get commercially can make the choice, well, this is how much risk they're prepared to take yeah. on a competitor or somebody else turning up and saying, hang on, we think, you know, you're making it sound like there really are 43 lemons in there and there really aren't. Yeah. So there's that kind of judgment as well. Um so anyway, I then had effectively a couple of years as Bruce's deputy, but the only person with lawyers reporting to them other than Bruce, as he had in the end about $5 billion worth of uh, revenue and P&L accountability, a uh, large chunk of profit in, in that given the Yellow Pages business in that era was still a license. Yeah, and for money. listeners who don't know what the Yellow Pages was, it was, uh, <laughs> it's Google, it was Google before Google. In paper form, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. And, then on, and then online, and in fact at one point, Census, which was the subsidiary that owned Yellow Pages, before Google had really got its search engine, in fact, built its own search engine that it used to call the search engine for Australians, quote, unquote. This is back in the days when you know, the internet was somewhat more segregated. Needless to say, Census now is a business that helps small businesses with online advertising. Yes, yeah. Uh, and I, don't, I can't recall the last time I saw a, a big, thick printed book. But I think uh, if you go into some offices, they're propping up monitors uh, around the place. Um, so some of the other skills that I think uh, you need to be quite adept at, 
um, I'm assuming politicking or you know being able to read the tea leaves of where people's other people's careers are going. Stakeholder management, obviously results, um, and presumably again with the legal side of it, making sure that the company is protected but not standing in the way of business. So. How much of those skills did you have and how many? How much of that did you learn on the job? Um, a bit of both. I think there are the quality of your legal analysis you can't have had at Union either. You have it or you don't, candidly. Um, and again, having come out of the commerce degree, you know, I got a, a prize in contract law, for example, because that was something where it kind of it all just made sense to me. Um, so you've got to have that legal judgment. And ultimately, your job is there. You are there to be a lawyer. You're not there being the marketing person or the strategist or whatever else having said that um i'd always taken it was the same with bruce it was okay i'll do this job to the best of my ability the law is a people business um and it's a bit like going I'll go way back to the cadets the cadets ultimately if you could motivate your you know it was a year 11 or year 12 if you could motivate the year nines then you could do a whole lot and have a whole lot of fun if they were all you know it's raining it's always it's the middle of you know whatever up in the, the you know hills in victoria as it was uh, and everyone is cold and miserable and you can't get the fire started for, you know, have a warm meal, well, you know, it's very hard to get anything done. And I can literally recall lying in the mud, you know, being the one getting the fire going with the rain coming down because I wanted them, you know, well-fed and warm. Slightly less, less sort of dramatic, but business and, you know, encouraging a team of lawyers to be their best is no different. Yeah. Most lawyers have really good intrinsic motivation. They didn't get through high school to get the marks they needed to get into law, to get through law, yep. to end up certainly in a place like Telstra. And largely they were coming out of mid to top tier firms. Uh, or in some cases they were staff who'd done engineering and then gone and done a law degree and we kind of brought them in. Um, so, you know, they're, they're easy to manage at one level, but there's often a lot of insecurity. What makes you really good and have that great attention to detail is that nagging fear that you've missed something. Yeah. Um, so recognising the law ultimately is a people business. And therefore, what is it time for with individuals in terms of building their confidence, um, equally stretching them out into that sort of zone of, of fear but not being terrified. Yep. And then on the client side, you as a lawyer need to know you've done all the, the legal work to be absolutely sure you have you know, Got it right. Dotted you the eyes. You haven't missed some bit of legislation yeah. here or misread that section there or forgotten about some issue. Equally, most of the time your customer doesn't need to know all of that. Some want to. Some just want to know the, the basics. Some really don't care about what's where you're at now. What they want to know is what's going to happen in six months' time. What do, what do you need to put on their, their radar? Um, so really it's about communication. Yeah. And the more you, the better listener you are, and the more you can help translate for people, and often man, I was kind of felt like I was doing a bit of translation sometimes. Here's I sit in the management meeting, all right, commercially, this is what they're trying to achieve. I go back to the legal team and say, right, well, I'm now going to sort of translate that into what I need you to do. You're the go between. Yeah, and equally for my sort of direct reports, exactly the same thing. Right, I want you to go and sit in that person's management team, come back and tell me afterwards, sort of, what did you hear that you think? And so you're listening for, all right, what's the business need? It's got a you know, a product development set of challenges. Well, there's a set of legal issues that go in there. It's got a labour workforce problem, and Telstra at that point um, was very heavily unionised. Yes. Um, and on its path from 100,000 staff in the early 90s down to you know, the current public number it's heading for is 24,000. Massive transformation. So there's what is it time for and how do you help, basically? And if, if they're your two questions, what's it time for and how can you help? 
as a lawyer or any other professional, it's a pretty good place to start. All right. So after doing that um, for a decade or more, you cross out of the legal altogether and take on the group managing director role at Telstra Business. So is that something you had your sights set on or, uh, you know, you talked about the commerce degree and how much you wanted to be in business. Was that something you were angling for? Or? Yeah, so the, the story there is I became general counsel in 2005, uh, had a CEO that was just finishing up CEO Swikowski, and then an American CEO came in called Sol Trujillo, who was quite public in a whole bunch of issues that went on with the government, but T3 happened in the middle of that period as well. Then David Thody took over from Sol in May of 2009, and we set about the process of negotiating a deal with NBN as it was then being created. In the middle of that process, I sat down with David Thody for one of my um, annual reviews and I said to him, look, David, I've you know, been in this job now five and a half years. I think you should turn over your general counsel every seven or eight. I think it's really healthy for the organisation to do that. Um, I would love to come and work for you in a business context. And by you, I didn't just mean directly for him, I meant in the organisation. Uh, if there's the, the right role, and if not, you know, let's get NBN done and probably I'll give you another year to do a very orderly transition. I had someone I thought was a very good successor sitting in the team, um, but equally knew he might well want to go and look wider. Um, so I was really giving him a sort of two-year kind of runway, if you like, for me finishing and someone else. And you were happy. That was your decision to that look at your decision. career that way. It was career decision. Um, I sort of was, you know, 41 at this point, and I thought if I'm going to make a transition out of the law, I really, you know, I've had had a great time. I've gone through T3 with Sol. We've done all sorts of, you know, built the 3G network, et cetera, Amazing mobile network. We're about to do NBN, and I said to Dave, I said, we'll get the NBN. This is an $11 net present value, you know, sort of $40 inflated cash flow kind of, you know, 30-plus year deal. Um, I thought none of us knew exactly when we were going to get this thing finished, but when we did, there wasn't going to be anything bigger. There was no T4 to go and do NBN was the thing that at least for that point in time would really set the industry up for the decade of the teens. And he said, oh, what do you want to do, says David? And I said, well, I'd like a role in enterprise or business sales. And he looks at me like, but why would a lawyer want to do that, he said. And I said, well, David, if you think about what I actually do in sitting in the board meetings with you and in the management meetings is I listen to what you're trying to achieve in the business. And then I go away and I have a team of specialists and I create solutions for you. And the solution might be, a, you know, an acquisition of auto home in China, or it might be a writ against the ACCC over wholesale access pricing, um, or it might be a billion-dollar ten-year deal with the Commonwealth Bank. But I and I use, you know, competition lawyers, property lawyers, litigators, whatever it is, and I build you a solution. And I come back and we discuss it, and I build a relationship with you, uh, and then we go and implement it. Um, so really, I, I see myself as a solution builder for the business. And that's what we do with our business and enterprise customers. I said, yeah, yeah, I can see the, see the logic. It's just their data specialists and mobility and cloud. And I said, yeah, exactly. So that was the middle of 2010. And we just signed a heads of agreement with NBN. It took another full 12 months yep. to get to the sort of definitive agreements. And we signed those on a Thursday at Parliament House in Canberra late June of 2011. And the following Wednesday, David rings me up and he says, how quickly can you clear your diary? And uh, I, we'd had no sleep for a week. This had literally been a 24-hour, round-the-clock, seven-day-a-week thing as we were trying to get it closed pre-30 June. I said, oh, I can't have a bit of sleep. What crisis? What do you have, want me to go and fix? He said, oh, nothing to go and fix. You're still interested in doing something after legal. Terrific. And I said, yeah, uh, yes, but look, not tomorrow. <laughs> and he said, oh, that's right. I've got to go to Remco tomorrow. And I said, can you tell me what it is? 
And he said, oh, I really should go and talk to the board before I tell you in case they, they're not so keen, but I think they will be. Anyway, Friday he rings me back and he says, oh, would you like to go and run Telstra Business? Fantastic. Million small, medium enterprise customers. Yeah. Everyone from sort of small home office up to about a country road kind of size business. Um, and so I said on the spot, I said yes. Yeah. So that was, that was how I went to TV. So, I mean, this is very interesting because there's quite often the view with some of the people that transition from law into other parts of Telstra business that it was a tap on the shoulder. But this is something that you drove. You were interested in crossing out of the law. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And willing to give David plenty of time. Um, my predecessor in Telstra business um, went off to run the All Adventures activity. Yep. Um, so I think from an outsider's timing point of view, it sort of looked like, well, she was ready to move. And David sort of needed someone to come in and do it. So Dina? That's Dina. Dina yeah, Schick, that's yeah, exactly yeah. right. Um, but from my point of view, no, I'd certainly started the conversation well before. Again, expecting it would take a while and expecting that there may be, well, you know, David had very much grown up in a sort of, come through IBM and a sort of a sales kind of, you know, he'd run the enterprise division. So he knew what the job entailed really well. In fact, he'd run Telstra Business as part of a broader group earlier on in his time at Telstra. So I knew he knew the space really well. But, oh, I should say, I'd also said to him, I didn't expect necessarily to report to him. I was happy to take a step off the sort of senior executive team because I was going going into a new role and I had a lot to learn. Yep. And so a guy called Gordon Valentine, who had was running consumer at that point, um, when I went into Telstra Business, he took over enterprise business and consumer. So he had sort of three quarters of Telstra's revenue as um, then sort of chief customer officer. So the you know, everyone from BHP down to mum and dad were all under one group with Gordon and then there were three of us, one running consumer, me running business and um, someone running enterprise who sort of was sitting there. And that was great because I got, Gordon had been um, COO at T-Mobile. He's subsequently left Telstra. He's been um, CEO at HealthScope most yep. recently until it's takeover. Um, Gordon was absolutely brilliant to learn from and because he had sort of three key uh, reports, he had more time to sort of, you know, mentor me for want of a better word, uh, then David would have as CEO with the whole of the rest of the company's yeah. operations to deal with. So yeah. from my point of view, it was brilliant. I got sort of, David sort of kept a senior executive structure where we were kind of there for some things and not there for others. So I still had plenty of exposure to the broader team, but equally I got, you know, the quality of, you know, learning that I could never have had otherwise. And I was going to ask about this transition perhaps in, in, in mindset where you've gone from a, a, a team that reports internally to the customer-facing side of the business. Now you've got the uh, the interest of shareholders that you've got to look at. Uh, you've got returns. You've got to keep very big business customers happy. Uh, you're talking about billions worth of income for this company, Telstra. High pressure, high stress? Um, yes, <laughs> no question about that. Um, again, I've had the luxury of sort of being alongside that business for quite a while and because I, you know, from at least the year before, I knew that I was hoping to end up in one of those places and I wasn't sure exactly sort of which bit or what, I kind of been paying a fair bit of attention to what was going on. Um, secondly, the law is a very good ground for understanding customer needs. Yep. Uh, more so than people realise. I agree. And, in fact, a lot of lawyers are very good salespeople. They just don't know. So they don't think about the fact that when they're doing client development, they're really selling. Yeah. It's exactly what they're yeah. doing. Um, but yes, there was, again, I'd done the, the sort of accounting as part of my commerce degree. So, you know, understanding what was going on as we were going through the, you know, all the financial reporting, that was more straightforward. Understanding, okay, you know, what, what's happening with margins, what's happening with a bunch of things, 
that was easier than it might have been if I hadn't had that, that background. Yep. And I'd obviously sat in the board, you know, going through all the results announcements, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of, the beauty of being in the business beforehand was I knew, one, what the, what the metrics that everyone else was looking at and the ones that really mattered versus those that didn't. Uh, and from a, from a customer point of view, I just kept thinking, you know, and I had a bunch of law firms in there, for example, right, well, you know, what do they need? What do the people I knew who'd been suppliers running small, medium business into me in you know, those previous roles, you know, how are they thinking about what they're doing? Um, and the ability to ask good questions. And lawyers are, generally speaking, good at asking they're questions. They're curious, aren't they? They're curious. Yeah. And so you go, there's nothing that most business people will love to do more than tell you about their business. Yeah. Particularly in small, medium land where, you know, Everybody is unique to a degree and everybody is the same to a degree. They mostly think they're unique and they, to some degree, always are. They're never quite the same. But just go and be interested, genuinely interested, which I was. I had so much to learn. And, gee, you can learn a lot in a hurry. Yeah, it's, um, it's funny. One of the experiences I got from you know, being in telecommunications, talking to a lot of businesses, is that everyone starts off by saying our telecommunications are very unique. And we can't be without our telecommunications. And I so, say, well, that actually makes you almost exactly the same to every business. But there's, you know, nuances. Everyone wants yeah. to think their business has got a special bent on it. Yeah. And uh, you do learn a lot from having these conversations with people. You do. And when you've got that kind of scale, you do you have enough variations in what you're doing. But getting the thing that is sort of the, the perfect fit rather than the kind of the right size doesn't always happen. Um, and, and when I walked in, there were a whole lot of process things that you you just take a big intake of breath, right, well, that's not how it needs to be. And, you know, we used to think of Net Promoter Score, which a lot of businesses you know, use. In 2010-11, it wasn't used anything like as much as it is, as it is now. Yeah. Um, you know, but we were going from significantly negative numbers and we got to significantly positive in the small medium space. Yeah. But it was, you know, five years of forensic hard work and, okay, which processes do we break down first? recompile, change the way we work. It's know, a, Telstra was leg- legendary for, you know, brilliant. Once you were all set up and running and everything was going great, don't touch it and it'll work beautifully till eternity. But if it's not working, it's not working. Um, and, you know, we did a lot. Equally, there was a lot when I left thinking, gee, I, you know, you wish you could have done more. Well, I mean, I, I certainly have seen it from inside and outside. It's been a transformation over 10 years. And it leads me to a question about... Uh, some of your previous uh, bosses. So you've had some very high-powered, <laughs> high-profile CEOs that you've uh, worked for, Ziggy Swakowski, Sol Trujillo, uh, David Thody, and now Andy Penn. Yeah. And the question I really wanted to know is, you know, different styles of management. For you, did you have to adopt your style of managing up to them? Um, interestingly, not after a while, um, in the sense that the things that always matter in business or in life, um, telling the truth, being focused on what's important and what's not, um, not overcommitting and underdelivering, and listening to people. I, you're there to make them be successful rather than for your own sake. True of anything, any customer supplier relationship, but particularly as a lawyer, those things don't change. Some are very understated, and you know, one of them, when he's really angry, he goes quiet. The other one of the others when they're really angry, anything but quiet. And I'm not going to say who was. I who. think we can draw the you draw the dots. <laughs> um, equally for each of them, you have to prove that you know one you are going to sort of unlike almost anybody else in the room, 
there is a line that you are there to ensure the organisation does not cross. Yep. And I had experiences with one in particular, but actually with two, but with one that really mattered, um, where there was a real question of whether a line was going to be crossed because certain people in the organisation wanted to cross a line. And I got came very close to resigning and said, well, I'm, one, um, you're not going to cross that line. And two, if you're going to go across that line, I'm not going to advise you on how to do it. Uh, and, you know, literally sort of pushed back from the table and if I'm walking out the drain, coming back in and... The CEO, and it wasn't him who was suggesting crossing this line. He said, no, this company should never knowingly cross the line. And I said, well, I'm here to do everything I can, go up to that line, because that's you know permissible. But there's a line and you don't cross it. Uh, we got on famously after that. There was a period before then where he wasn't sure whether I was being too conservative. And he thought, all right, this is this was the proof. Here's where the line is. Yeah. And you know, it wasn't a go-to-jail offence, but it was something which was serious. Uh and yeah, after that, he knew I had his back. I wouldn't. I wasn't going to knowingly let him do something that he shouldn't do. But equally, in terms of the commercial success of the organisation, well, yeah, I do everything I could to work within the, the boundaries that you know the law set for us. These are very uh, these are very interesting uh, times where you have these kind of yeah, it doesn't happen often high pressure environments. And I think one of the other questions with the changing nature of the workforce and particularly the reduction in numbers. So you have worked. In Telstra for a long time, no doubt made a lot of lifelong friends, acquaintances, colleagues. Um, there must have been a few times friendships got burnt and relationships turned sour as well. Uh, is that hard to deal with in a corporate environment? Um, one of the CEOs once very famously, I think somebody said this publicly, you know, business is business. And that's, that's true to a point. But you can be straight with people in the sense of giving them an understanding of what's coming. Or you can decide to sort of postpone the inevitable and deal with it later in a more difficult situation. Uh, also, often if you've got people who you know can see something's coming, it is a sense there is a huge sense of relief when they you know finally learn. And so, the sooner you can do it, the better. So, my general approach was be as open as I possibly could, as early as I possibly could. Um, Having said that, I had one person who I needed to um, terminate, and I got up to shake their hands, and they I'd known this person for a long time, they wouldn't shake my hand. Well, that's your call. You're emotional. It's in the moment. I get it. You can do everything you can on your side. It's what's it time for for the other person as well. Yeah. Um, what I will say is that the worst thing, though, you can do is not make the difficult decisions out of concern for people. Yeah. Because you're only making the end outcome worse. In other words, you know, at different points as Telstra's been going through its evolution, the rest of the industry has as well. And the sooner someone knows what's happening and can start building the next chapter of the future from the beginning of the chapter is way better than clinging on to trying to eke out another half page at the end of the current one where most of the time people can see that something is coming. Um, having said that, I made one mistake in my... Um, uh, it can work the other way. We, we had a group of people in uh, one of the roles I was doing towards the end and we needed them for um, another nine months as we were building a system that would, in fact, automate the work they were doing. And we thought we should do the right thing. This was my decision. One of my team thought this was crazy, is to go and you know be very open and say, look, you know, and they knew this system was being built. They just didn't know exactly when we thought it was going to be ready. And I went and said to them, look, you know, reality is at the end of the nine months, this thing will be switched on, and you know the work that you currently you'll do be will, switched will now off. be automated. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, obviously you've got the roles till then. You'll be made redundant. Blah blah blah. So. What happened was um, three quarters of them then um, within three months had all got jobs elsewhere and left. They didn't take the redundancy. That was their call. 
a lot of people at Telstra have been there a long time and the redundancy was valuable for this group. It wasn't so much. A lot of them were newer. And we then ended up, um, at the ones who were left were working overtime and really working hard. And, of course, we couldn't go and hire people easily. We had some contractors come in, but it was too short to go and hire somebody new. Um, and the people who were left who didn't leave were, you know, worked a lot harder than they needed to. That was a lesson of, all right, there, there is a balance here and sometimes you can overdo being trying to do the right thing. But a good, so good learning. I learned, learned yeah. a lesson at yeah, yeah. the time. So it doesn't being again, a professional workforce sometimes is slightly different too. To, and this was a larger number of um, sort of um, less skilled workforce. Um, so, you know, there are different times and places for different things. So after 22 years at Telstra, um, taking some very senior roles in legal and business, you're now moving into um, the NBN Co, which is one of the great infrastructure building projects that Australia's undertaken in the last hundred years. Um, you know, had you had enough at Telstra? Is it time for a change? Yeah, um, <laughs> it, it was. It was time for a change again. Take but go back to my own advice. Um, and the last thing I was doing was setting up what's called Telstra InfraCo, which was the wholesale and infrastructure business that you know, I, forgot, I did the announcement of it in June of um, 2018, essentially to get, give Telstra the option to separate itself from a wholesale-only sort of infrastructure layer business, uh, essentially on the fixed side, not on mobile, and then to move the mobile business plus the sort of retail um, fixed and data side into a separate entity at some future point. And the announcement at the time talked about, you know, this would leave scope for a strategic investor, may or may not be NBN Co, uh, but certainly one of the analysts and so on the transcripts sort of said, oh, you know, would, would the investor potentially have very large forward liability to Telstra? And Andy Benz was as well, that's an investor we'd certainly be talking to, he said. Uh, it was only one of them. Um, so, yeah, it was. it's a very neat, logical sort of mixed um, fit. Equally, when I left Telstra, I wasn't planning on going to NBN. I went and explored a whole bunch of different ideas yep. in my sort of gardening leave uh, period. Yep. And then through a sort of mutual connection, um, NBN CEO rang me up and said, let's have breakfast and one thing led to another. I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting change to go from 22 years to a new business. Are you, are you nervous about new people, new teams, new structures? Um, look, not particularly. Again, as much as I was in the one place for all that time, you mentioned the different CEOs and... You know, as Ziggy to a Sol to a David to an Andy have been quite different sort of ways of working. Equally, legal to small, medium business to wholesale to infrastructure has been a set of transitions as well. So I've probably had more experience than a lot of people would have in that time of moving from areas where one skill set mattered to where something quite different matters. Uh, secondly, the work that NBN Co does today is stuff that 25 years ago Telstra was doing. Yep. So in that sense, at least the business is sort of familiar. Um, and having been on the other side of the negotiation in 2011, which was the thing that really set up NBN, uh, so I sort of have an understanding of it from there. You're jumping the fence properly. So I'm kind of jumping the, jumping the fence, albeit with a decent gap in between. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, the five years I had in Telstra business, I wasn't dealing with NBN at all, really. Yeah. Yep. Um, so anyway. It's a major, I mean, it's a major... Um, change for the business, the role's called strategy and transformation. So you're going to have a massive role to play in the future of 12 million plus households, all of these businesses, how they're connected to the world, um, and obviously a political hot potato to boot. Uh, any pressure here, Will? <laughs> I think a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the logic of NBN in terms of a ubiquitous network and there are areas which are very expensive to serve and areas which are not. And this was always Telstra's challenge in doing it was how did you fund the non-economic you know, areas? And that's just a function of 25 million people spread over 7.5 million square kilometres and they're not equally distributed. Um, so Australia has some unique cost challenges to bring high-speed broadband to people. Equally, the flip side of that is there are some huge benefits, um, particularly in regional and remote Australia, but also even from a flexible working and family point of view inside the cities from the issues of congestion that doesn't matter whether you live in you know, central Sydney or you know, out past Dubbo or in you know, Albany, Western Australia, you're facing these issues one way or another. Um, so it has huge potential. The logic of a single integrated wholesale-only builder, having sat in wholesale in Telstra back in 1997, given the regulatory regime and given the need for that sort of consistency of platform is, I think, really significant. And then how you bring the lo a lower cost of capital into that model, yeah. it's a lower risk business. It should have a lower cost of capital. But in an industry that is very capitally intensive, that cost of capital is a fundamental driver of prices. Yeah. So dealing with that question and how you do that efficiently ultimately has systemic benefits for the whole economy in addition to having industry benefits for everyone else. Yeah. As you know, there's a big public debate going on at the moment. Um, Telstra's Andy Penn has been putting very public position, you know, gave a speech at the National Press Club in early August. Yep. Uh, you know, other commentators are making commentary. Other parts of the industry are being very quiet on the topic. Maybe they don't quite have Andy's view, but they're, you know, they've got their own issues to deal with. Um, so there's a big systemic question about that. Uh, and then there's a long-run technology question. Uh, yes. Because you know the demand for broadband continues to grow, um, you've got and you've got different groups at different points of that evolution as well. Uh, well, you're not going to be bored in this world. <laughs> That's right. I've got one um, question to finish off on about yourself and again your view of the world. So you know you've seen a lot of people that haven't made uh, the grade in terms of you know top sea level roles. What do you think? separates the people who get them like yourself and the people who just don't quite get there? Is it luck? Is it politics or something else? Um, I don't think it's politics. In fact, I think those who try to play politics, in my experience, rarely succeed. Most people have got pretty good, excuse the phrase, but bullshit antenna and I can see it when it's happening. Um, I think that there are probably three things that I would, would name. Number one is people. If you are doing a good job of mentoring and nurturing your people, and that doesn't mean being easy or soft with them. In fact, the best mentor I ever had at one point sort of, you know, effectively gave me sort of a bullet between the eyes in terms of, you know, his quote to me was, with your sucking energy out of the room. And that, it's stuck. Still yeah. seems to say it today. Yeah. But he was right. Yeah. And the boys, he knew he could, that was what he needed to kind of, hit me to get me to do a fundamental shift in how Ouch. I was thinking I mean, about that, a particular problem. That is... And that's the great skill. The yeah. skill of a leader of people is to know when is it time for you know, the, the cup of tea and the sort of just need a, someone to listen to for a bit and when is the time to go and say, listen, mate, whack. And those who do that well get disproportionate value from great people on their teams and will have people walk over you know, metaphorical broken glass for them. So number one, it's about people and that is both up, up and down. Yep. Up, it's how do you, put bluntly, make your boss and his or her peers and all the organisation not just look good but be good. Yep. Number two is that sense of, you know, purpose and commitment. 
you've got to have a purpose in life. If you're just there for the paycheck, go somewhere else. Forget about it. You know, what is what your group, your team, your organisation, your company, your industry doing that makes a difference that you can get on board with? You've got to have that sense of purpose because that gives you, you know, why do you get up in the morning? Well, you're helping make the place a better place, yep. whatever that is. Um, and that also affects the way your team think about things too. Um, so if you've got the people and then you've sort of got that sort of sense of purpose, I think is critically important. And then there's just the get on and do it, sweat the detail, don't assume someone else is going to sort of, you know, solve your problems for you and uh, a bit of sort of internal resilience. Uh, so effectively, how do you show up? Yep. So there's a people, a purpose, and then a how. Yeah. Uh, British Telecom had a nice way on that last one. They used to call it JFDI. I've not come across JFDI. Uh, it just... Do oh, okay, got it, got it. <laughs> got it. It's a PG yeah. show. <laughs> yeah. With you now, all right. Well, exactly, yes, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, one of our CEOs would never have used the second device and the other used it every day, but it doesn't matter. And again, back to the people bit, you take people as you find them. Um, don't assume that because somebody talks a particular way or has a particular level of education or anything else, that they don't have a lot of value to add. Uh, and by the way, this applies inside organisations too. The idea that oh, it's only people who are, you know, DRs to somebody important matter. I would learn as much. I used to go to a contact centre in Burwood in Melbourne, which I live not too far from, and I would spend Wednesdays when I was in telephone yep. business, and I'd just go out wandering the floor. And interestingly, the first time or two, the centre manager would come shooting out, oh, oh, you're here, and sort of chaperone me around. Then I got a pass, and I just wander in, and I became part of the furniture. What I learned about how the business was working, and in, in big organisations, this is hard. In small, medium, of course you're on the floor. You know what's going on. You have to. When you've got a 1,000 people in the team, you don't know what's going on. But the people who are, you know, I used, uh, at one point I drew the org chart upside down, and I said, you know, everyone thinks of sort of organisations like they're the, the roots of a tree where it's all the little people, quote, unquote, down the bottom, and they all feed up to the trunk as the sort of CEO. And I said... But what's a bit of the tree we all see? It's actually the other way around. It's the trunk is holding it up, but it's all the people out on the branches. There, that's where the value is. It's where the fruit is or the leaves are or the flowers are. That's everybody who's customer-facing and serving. The trunk is the least. It's the boring least. Why do we care about the trunk? But oh, every org chart you see, you'll have, you know, boss at the top and then next layer and then next. That, is, the roots. that is very interesting. We're the top of the tree, not the bottom. Yeah. Uh, and when you start thinking about it like that, you find this a lot more fun. Uh, two, you go places a lot faster because you can. Never, never even thought about it like that. So that's actually a really nice way to uh, put a full stop on that and then get into the bit of the last bit, a little bit of levity, quick fire round. Oh yeah. Who's your favourite comedian? Uh, Sean McAuliffe. Uh, tennis player. Um, Pet Rafter. Favourite band? Uh, Pet Shop Boys. Favourite artist. Ooh, um, McGreece. Fondest childhood memory? Um, going skiing with my brothers and mum and dad when I was about eight. Most memorable smell? Um, the hops of a brewery down on the Yarra River in Richmond, which I used to run past a lot when I was a teenager. I grew up on a street with a brewery, Cooper's Brewery in Adelaide. It's oh, a very yeah. memorable smell. Um, who is the person, dead or alive, you would most like to have lunch with? Oh, that's an impossible question. Um, that's a very good question. 
I'd probably pick George Washington. Okay. Why? Um, because I think the shift in the thinking, not just for how to sort of solve the problem of independence from Britain, but the thinking around the sort of non independent constitution. Think about this is before the French Revolution. The first place that really comes up is ancient Greece. In the modern times, with a, a democracy that is still the Ruth of the Australian Constitution is modern and it's the foundation of all that is going on, including you know, the gun problem in America, etc. It all comes back to what did that group? Yeah. And there's a few of them, maybe probably Jefferson, a couple of others, the obvious fun guy. Excellent. Well, listen, Will, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you for your time. Good luck with your NBN adventure. Thank you, Good luck with your